This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. remember it. 102.7. I'm uh, out of my usual uh, <laughs> my usual introductory banter. I should just stick to what I usually do. This is Radio Marinara and my name is Bron Burton. And I'm Angeline Charles. How are you, Angeline? I'm good. I'm all embarrassed now. No, don't be. <laughs> How bumpy was that? <laughs> I've heard way worse. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, this is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, everything to do with the marine environment, the oceans and the coasts and the estuaries of the world. Um, thank you very much to Tim Thorpe for uh, wonderful vital bits. Beautiful, it was great, wasn't it? Beautiful Father's Day edition. Mm, I love the air song. That's, I really like that soundtrack. Yeah. I had to um, I had to get out of the car when he was playing My Boy Bill, which I always love listening to. Yeah. Once a year, it's become a Father's Day tradition on Vital Bits. It is Father's Day, so happy Father's mm. Day, Dad's out there listening. Yes. Indeed. We're not making such a big deal of it today. No, it's still too early for that. <laughs> They're probably still trying to stay in bed and, you know, stay under the covers. That's it. Having said that, I'm going to play track for my dad in a little while. Uh, today's show, we've got a, uh, a lot of people to talk to, Angeline. Um, shortly coming into the studio will be Richard Reiner and Derek Depp. Derek is a uh, PhD student at Monash University and Richard is his supervisor, associate professor. And they're coming in to talk about some research that they've been doing into different um, breathing modes that sharks use. And my instant reaction to that was, hang on, sharks don't breathe in the conventional kind of air sense. But uh, it's quite interesting. It, um, they, they do have a type of breathing and it can affect how they survive once they're wow. accidentally captured. Well, there's always that sort of... It's not necessarily a myth, but, you know, that they've got to keep moving to breathe. Yes. Sharks. That's right. Is, yeah. And I guess you, you can technically breathe water, but we'll, we'll talk to them about we'll leave that. Leave that to the experts. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Won't preempt anything. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk to them about this research that they've been doing and the work that Derek's doing for his PhD has come uh, as a spin-off of 10 years of research that Richard's been doing into this area. And uh, looking at uh, a whole bunch of different sharks, how they breathe differently, and once they get caught as uh, bycatch, how it can potentially 
influence whether or not they survive. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Um, we're going to do some local news and then we're going to be crossing to Hobart to speak with uh, Dr Tim Lynch, who, in addition to being the uh, national president of the Australian Marine Sciences Association, he's also a senior research scientist at CSIRO, CSIRO, and has been doing some work to try and um, scope out a captive breeding program for handfish. And handfish are amazing little fish. We'll get him to describe them. But basically, they their pectoral fins, I'm not sure if it's their pelvic ones as well, have adapt, adapted over time to effectively form a, a walking limb. Yeah. And so they walk ac- along the bottom of the, the wow. wherever they are, estuary. Yep. And uh, are in trouble in terms yeah. of their numbers. Well, I, I was reading an article in the paper that were, were far more widely spread than they are now, and they're now just in this estuary. That's right. Yeah. And just subject to, they're just getting hammered by all kinds of different impacts. Yep. Uh, everything from the Northern Pacific Sea Star to um, development of um, moorings and, and marinas and so on, and just general coastal impacts. So mm, That'd be great to hear. Yeah, really good. And uh, it's kind of hit crunch time. So Tim's looking at um, developing a captive breeding program really as a, as a almost an emergency stock. Fantastic. Mm. And then we've got a whole bunch of news, Angeline. We have. Uh, I'm going to give an update on the, the ocean cleanup project uh, that's been run out of the Netherlands by a 21-year-old man, uh, I would I would call him, Boyan Slat, uh, and it's a project that he's developing to clean up the oceans, so the gyres of the, around the planet, the five of them of like big garbage patches, and he's developing this technology, and they've been out to do a, sort of a reconnaissance missions to try and measure how big the patch is and how deep it is so they can set up their equipment. So it sounds like it's going really well, the project, so uh, we'll leave that update to the end of the show, and a bit about seabirds and and uh, some sad predictions. Yeah, and there's a direct link between these two stories, actually, yeah. Yeah. Great, and I've got a few bits and pieces as well, so um, certainly enough to keep you informed and uh, edumacated over the next 55 minutes of Radio Marinara. Bit of weather, 16. We're certainly creeping into uh, into spring weather now. We've kind of crept over the, the 15 degrees. Today it'll be 16. Local early morning fog, cloud increasing during the morning, high chance of showers mostly in the evening, and light winds becoming northerly up to 35 kilometres in the morning and then tending northwesterly 20 to 30 kilometres in the late evening. There is a, a 90% chance of rain though. Wow, it doesn't look like that outside no, at the moment. it looks pretty nice outside. I guess it depends on where you are. But not much, only 1 to 5 mils. Uh, tomorrow, 14 and showers, mostly cloudy. And Tuesday, 14 and a shower or two. In fact, a shower or two all the way through to Thursday. Temperatures hovering around 14. Um, Thursday, it'll clear, clear up. 16, whoa, and then up to 20 on Friday and Saturday. Next weekend is looking very nice. Great. Bring on on more warm weather, please. It's that time of the year where you kind of put over it, put on the shorts and go, whoa. It (laughs) hasn't been three months of winter. There was. It was a beautiful sunny day this week, um, and I really noticed that how much, it's how gloomy it's been, and this beautiful sunny day, and I was sitting on the train, and the sun was just pouring through the window, and I thought, yeah, it's been really dark, hasn't it? It's time for it to become sunny. (laughs) And warm. Yeah, and warm. People can kind of start to... I love winter, but it's just nice having that little bit of respite. 
Uh, the tide times at Port Phillip Heads heading for a low tide at 10 to 11 this morning uh, and then a high tide at about 20 past 5 this afternoon and a bit of a surf report because we don't have Dr Surf in here today and he concurs with the uh, the surf report that Swell puts out. <laughs> well, he agrees with what they say. Moderate-sized mix of swells easing across the state, fresh north to nor'easterly wind and the wind should tend more northerly through the day. Water temperatures 13 degrees. Phillip Island, great conditions at Woolamai for experienced surfers, easing sets from 1.5 metres. Down on the Mornington Peninsula, clean, excellent 1.75 metres waves early. Wave metres waves. 1.75 metre waves. Oh, get it together. <laughs> Smaller and more manageable into the afternoon. And on the surf coast, fun, easing, uh, 0.75 metre waves on the beaches all day. There's your surf report. Fantastic. <laughs> Wasn't very good last week. I'm tipping Dr Surf's out there today. A couple of quick plugs and then I think we'll play some music. One is for the Disabled Surfers Association and they have got a fundraising event next Sunday. 13th of September from 2pm onwards and this is very exciting if you missed the show last week uh, you'll be interested to know that they've got a whole bunch of uh, hand painted boards in AFL team colours, um, so this is Trigger Brothers, they've made 18 surfboards in AFL colours and they've all been signed by team members, wow. so it's not just the colours of the boards, they've actually got signatures from the players uh, and the coaches so they're going to be auctioned at Baja in Rye uh, next Sunday, 13th of September, to raise funds for the Disabled Surfers Association, Mornington Peninsula Branch, and Dr Surf's being very active in, in getting this happening. Yeah, what a great program to do that. Yeah. Too. They look really good in the picture, actually, for those who are, you know, listening to this show. Yes. <laughs> if you're into football, I think you'd want one of those. I did say last week I'd put up some images on um, on the on our Facebook page, and I haven't done that yet, so I will do that today, probably this afternoon, once yeah. I've been busy running around doing Father's Day activities. Um, so, yes, uh, put that in your calendar for next Sunday afternoon from 2pm onwards and get down to Baja and chuck in your bid. They're absolutely magnificent-looking surfboards, particularly if you're into your footy as well. If you want some more information or if you want to bid remotely, you don't need to actually be there to put your hand up. Firstreef.weebly.com. Firstreef.weebly.com. We'll definitely put that link on our Facebook page. Yes, we will. Uh, and another quick plug for... Um, Actually, it's for the Environmental Film Festival, which is running at the moment. It kicked off on Thursday, goes through till Thursday coming on the 10th of September. There's all sorts of great films um, on. And I'm actually going to hold off on this when we have our little uh, news segment in the middle. Oh, we'll sure. talk about some of the movies that are yep. on. Now, here's some staggering facts for you. The first is that a quarter of shark and ray species are threatened with extinction. The second is that approximately 100 million sharks are caught worldwide each year, many of them accidentally captured by fishers targeting other species of fish. You put those two facts together and we've got a pretty grim situation here. So known as bycatch, these sharks often die from physical injury or suffocation before fishers have a chance to release them. So with this in mind, a team of researchers at Monash and Flinders Universities has been looking at different ways that sharks breathe and how this can affect their chances of surviving following capture. To tell us all about it, we've brought the experts in, possible implications for fisheries management too. We're pleased to welcome to Triple R from Monash University PhD student Derek Dapp. Good morning, Derek. 
Good morning, Brian. And his supervisor, Associate Professor Richard Rayner. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Well, thank you. And yourselves? Very thanks, well. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, doing pretty good. On Father's Day. <laughs> yes, it was, a, it was a long trip from the hills, but I'm pleased to make it. Fantastic. Oh, we're really glad to have you here. So let's look at those facts again. A quarter of all shark species facing extinction and 100 million deaths worldwide every year. They're pretty sobering figures. Where do those statistics come from? Is that um, a global estimate sort of that's been put together by different fisheries management authorities? Well, there's been a researcher um, actually over in Canada who made this estimate recently. Um, It would have been um, from last year. And that statistic comes from just all fisheries capture. Um, And a lot of it actually is um, illegal and unregulated. So they used estimates of that as well, figuring it into it. So the estimate itself um, actually ranges anywhere from 60 to 250 million, but their most, um, their best estimate is about 100 million. Wow! So potentially up to 250 million. Yeah, that's correct. Right, and and how? What percentage of those would be accidental, in terms of bycatch? That's actually hard to estimate. It's v- I guess. Very difficult to answer because of the large proportion or the large amount of illegal and unregulated fishing because it's undocumented. But the United Nations, through the Food and Agriculture Organisation, do collect information on the the regulated and and uh, commercial catch. Um, So it is very difficult to say, but bycatch is is possibly up to 50% or more of of total catch. That's amazing. So so roughly, using those numbers, between about 50 and 100 million sharks accidentally caught as bycatch, roughly. Potentially as high as that, yes. And I'm kind of, you know, with a blindfold on stabbing at at potential potential figures, but that's a a huge number. So I'm sure many of our listeners, we were talking about this before, are thinking about the, the concept of shark breathing. So in terms of breathing air, because sharks, of course, live in the water, but there is an issue in terms of how they breathe, isn't there? Uh, in terms of what happens once they're captured. What do we mean by the term shark breathing? What does that mean? So in order for sharks to breathe, I think it's a common myth that sharks need to keep on moving forward in order to breathe. That's what I was uh, certainly taught when I was a little kid. However, that's actually not true. There are many sharks that that is true for, um, sharks like thresher sharks and hammerheads. Um, They're very active sharks that have evolved basically to need to keep on moving forward. As they move forward, basically the water moves through their mouth and passes over their gills that oxygenates their bodies. But there are other sharks that actually are able to breathe while they're stationary. Those would be sharks that um, are a little bit less active, um, things like gummy sharks and port jacksons that often sit on the bottom. Okay. So in terms of the actual methods that are used by fishers, um, there are a few that um, I was reading in in some of the press uh, information that came through to me. So gill netting, long lining, trawling. Are some of these methods worse for sharks than others in in terms of their potential ability to survive? Yeah, that would be right. Um, So with gill nets uh, particularly, when sharks get caught in those, they lose the ability completely to move forward. Um, that's because just the way the net works. Um, basically, they swim into it, they get caught by the gills, um, and they can't back out. Um, but other other methods, such as long lines, um, they have a little bit of leeway where they can swim around um, with the hook in their mouth. Um, so it's certainly a little bit less stressful than gill nets. With trawls... Um, how it works is sharks can get compacted in the back of a net, and when they do that, they get compacted against other catch, and the um, ability to move is a little bit a little bit less, so also a little bit worse than long lines. Okay, so out of the three, which would be... It's a hard question, of course, because you've looked at a whole bunch of different species of sharks, but which of those three do you think would, would have a, a bigger impact on sharks? Well, gillnets and trolls are about equally as bad, but most of the shark catch actually comes from long lines. Um, long lines have the highest, um, the lowest mortality rate, 
rates. Um, so they have the least impact on sharks, but they're also the most popular fishing style currently. Okay. It's, it's an important thing to, to remember that these fisheries are occurring all over the world and that long lines are the most numerous in terms of the actual catch total. And therefore, even though their impact um, is less on the individual animal collectively, it's it's a huge, huge effect. Mm. Um, Richard, this was a question I had for you in terms of this particular piece of research that Derek's been doing has built on 10 years of research, I understand? Yes, that's that you've right. you've been doing into this. So a question for you really, I guess, tell us about some of your, your research over the, the last 10 years because this has been your area of specialty and what have we learned so far? The focus of the work that I've been doing has been to understand the sensitivity of, of different species of sharks and, and the work that Derek's done has looked specifically at their mode of respiration. But we've been looking at the sensitivity more broadly of different species and through a combination of sort of chem, semi-captive studies that we did down at the, the Marine Centre at Queenscliff where I have a lot of tanks um, and we can catch sharks in Port Phillip Bay or Western Port Bay or further offshore and understand how the sensitivity of different species varies because there are some, such as the hammerheads that Derek mentioned, that are really sensitive to the stress of capture. So what we've identified is that in addition to differences in respiration, that basic differences in physiology of active and less active sharks mean that they tolerate the capture to varying degrees. They recover more quickly or more slowly if they have survived. The rates of mortality vary for different species. And recently also we've identified that there are reproductive consequences um, to uh, live-bearing sharks. So some sharks lay eggs and some have a live birth and some have kind of a a blend of the two in a way. So a different PhD student um, has discovered that the stress of the fisheries capture actually causes a more premature birth in these live-bearing... It was a species of rays that he was working with. The pups are smaller. So there's a variety of different impacts that the fisheries can have um, in addition to straight mortality. So obviously the outcome for a dead shark is death. Yes. But there are other effects that can occur that are, that are less less uh, obvious and but potentially just as important. That's amazing. So in terms of the impact on, on their um, ability to um, a- actually give birth to live young, can you give us a bit of a snapshot of the types of sharks out there that do give birth to live young as opposed to, and I know we've got there are 80 species that you're looking at in particular, but maybe just a, a grab bag of a few of them. So um, most of the, the more active, the sharks that, that Derek mentioned, they're, they're called pelagic sharks, the ones that are out in the open ocean they're not necessarily coastal because they tend to live in much deeper water um, most of those species so white sharks tiger sharks hammerheads and so on um, they don't come to very shallow waters in general so therefore they're not laying eggs which tend to rest on the bottom or attached to vegetation and and other solid materials so most of those are live bearing sharks whereas others say for example such as port jackson sharks and elephant sharks and others that are quite common around this part of victoria lay eggs and and so they're called mermaids purses and they look like giant screws don't they there are some that look like screws there are some that look more like a boxy sort of shape and you can find them washed up on the beach after the embryos emerged and, and the baby shark has swum off, those float around, they wash up on the beach and, and you can find them quite easily. Um, but those two basic different reproductive modes then mean that the sensitivity or the possible consequence of being caught by fisheries is different because a live-bearing shark is pregnant for a long time and many of them have really long gestations, over a year. Wow. So potentially then 
many, many adult female sharks at any given time will actually be pregnant and therefore the stress that they experience can affect not only them but the pups that are developing within them. That's right, which then has huge implications for future population. Yes, it does, and unfortunately it is one of those areas of research that's very difficult to quantify because understanding that sort of knock-on secondary and tertiary effects is much more complex. That's right. Um, Actually, while we're... I'm slightly off topic here, but I'm really curious about this. Something that someone told me once, um, just while I've got you in studio and you might not know the answer to this, is terms in terms of shark behaviour and um, whether or not the a lot of sharks have got two dorsal fins mm-hmm. and the relative proportion of the size of the dorsal fins can be an indication of their temperament. So the more... Um, the, the sharks that have one massive big front dorsal fin and a, a smaller secondary one are more likely to you know, have the potential to be aggressive. So that includes the great whites and bull sharks and so on. We have sharks that have got two dorsal fins that are about the same size. So typically your reef sharks, grey nurses and so on, they tend to be a bit more docile. Have you heard that before? I actually had never heard that. No. Right. I, 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 there you I, go. I probably wouldn't be um, putting my life in the hands of that piece of information <laughs> yeah. when it comes to making a decision about whether to jump into the, the ocean with one of those species. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. I was just wondering if you heard of it. All right, so we'll move back to topic here. Um, and, Derek, I guess with your particular piece of research, let's, let's go back to the start of it. How did you set up what you were wanting to have a look at? So it kind of started with looking at Richard's it kind of started look, with looking at Richard's past research. Um, basically, when we looked at the physiology of these sharks and we were looking at their blood chemistry after capture, we realized that the symptoms that they were showing, the sharks that died, um, basically looked like they had exercised themselves to death um, under low oxygen conditions. It um, Really high levels of lactate, things like that. So it started to become obvious that these sharks were struggling to breathe while they were captured um, during fisheries. Wow. That's amazing. And were you? I've um, had it in my notes that you were looking at 80 species of sharks and rays. Was that you with your work in particular? No, actually, unfortunately, it wasn't. I do look at about 5 to 10 species um, okay. in my research, um, but what I did was I've collated a lot of other sources from around the world, and um, those 80 species, um, I was looking at um, kind of a global perspective from all different researchers around the world. Right. Can I ask a practical question? How do you take a blood test from a live shark? Well, I suppose these ones were, some of them were already dead. So um, we we catch them um, with whatever type of, of method of fishing we can to catch them. And then what we do is we uh, flip them over. It puts them in a state. It's called uh, tonic immobility. And basically that puts them in kind of a almost like a sleep state where they're um, much less aggressive. And when you do that, then you um, can take blood um, near the back of their, their tail fin. Wow. And an important part is knowing which end to sample from. So <laughs> you don't sample from the end with the teeth. But, no. But as Derek said, when you flip a shark upside down, most species, it's like when you turn a chicken upside down, most species just become very calm. Right. And I, I've seen Derek take a blood sample in five to ten seconds. Wow. And, and with practice, and especially when you consider that, with a with a shark, there's no obvious vein that you can see at the surface like you could when you get a blood sample taken for yourself from the doctor. Mm. Um, so it's all about knowing the landmarks and, and practice and precision. So um, it is actually easier than you might think. What a great thing to put on your CV. <laughs> Expert at taking blood from sharks. <laughs> <laughs> you could use that line pretty much anywhere. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about spiracles because I know this has a significant role to play in this scenario too, doesn't it? Can you tell us a bit about the spiracle? Yeah, that's correct. What is a spiracle? Um, Let's start with that. 
so a spiracle is a respi- uh, respiratory organ. It's um, basically just behind the shark's eye. And this is that structure that basically allows some sharks to breathe while they're stationary. Um, some sharks, um, those active ones we mentioned earlier, hammerheads, thresher sharks, white sharks, they've actually evolved to not have a spiracle, and that's why they can't breathe while stationary anymore. How the spiracle works is basically the shark pumps in water, um, and then it goes over their gills and basically um, exits the shark, just as if the shark were moving and passing water over their gills okay so it's almost like a lifeline um in a way that, yeah. that like an extra little bit of um uh oxygen i suppose that they can use when they need to yeah yeah and it's it's perfect for those sharks to just sit on the bottom because they can't be moving forward all the time mm-hmm. and that's exactly what it does perhaps the best analogy would be um it's the equivalent to our nostrils so if you cover your mouth you can still breathe through your nose so those sharks that have a have a spiracle when their mouth when they can't have their mouth open and move forward, they can draw the water in through the spiracle and still over the gills and, and out. Is there a theory why the active sharks have evolved to not have the spiracle anymore? Is it about efficiency, do you think? A lot of it is, is likely to be with the fact that they're more active, so their demand for water and for oxygen is much greater, so that when they swim and they open their mouth, it's called ram ventilation, and as they swim forward through the water with their mouth open, then a large volume of water can pass over the gills. So actually their efficiency at extracting oxygen is not very high, but because there's a large throughput, a lot of water moving through, then taking a small amount of oxygen out of, out of every litre still means, because many litres pass over the gills, that they can get enough oxygen to sustain a, an active lifestyle. So in that sort of situation, then having this secondary option with the spiracle is, is not of any particular benefit uh, because they are such fast-moving predators. Mm. So I guess here's the big question. You've, we've got this knowledge now. How is it planned? So you'll be working with fisheries managers. Is there the potential to lower the incidence of shark death, particularly following bycatch? Um, yeah, so when a particularly vulnerable species is identified, um, basically there's about 500 species of sharks, and of those we know mortality rates for um, about 80. Um, and for all those species that we don't know the mortality rates of, now we can identify ones that are vulnerable based off their respiratory mode, and we can um, basically start planning research to protect those species or at least learn more about those species. Because mm, I imagine fisheries managers would be really interested in this this piece of research and the potential to look at you know, if there's a window of time where you can potentially save a shark's life. Yes, that's right. And so I've actually been working with the Australian Fisheries Management Authority, and they've been a partner in this research. Um, they've been involved for about the last six years, and they're wanting to use this information to, to make priority decisions on the types of sharks that are most at risk and the gear types that result in highest levels of mortality so that fisheries managers here and, and elsewhere can make informed decisions on where to focus their management effort um, by either regulation on gear type or times and, and places of fishing and so on. Mm, or even potentially adjusting the quotas for this as well. That's, that's true. And the, Australia has a highly regulated fishery, and I think um, by world standards it's, it's a, a very well-managed fishery, um, both in, at a state level and at a, a, a Commonwealth level. Um, so there are many quotas applying to different species, including bycatch species, and using the information then on likely rates of mortality and post-release survival allows those quotas to be maintained and adjusted at, at sustainable levels. Thanks so much to both of you for coming in. We have to move on, but I'd love to have you both back. 
I'd be delighted. It'd be great to come have you back. Yeah, that'd be great, Brian. Whereabouts are you in your PhD, Derek? So I'm about three years in. Um, it looks like I'll be around for about um, six more months. Okay, fantastic. So maybe come get in touch with us and come back when, when this is all wrapped up and let us know what you've found. Certainly will. You're, in, you're in right up stage now. Yeah, I remember he's get, it. He's getting close. <laughs> PhD students are always very optimistic about how long it's going to take to finish. Yeah. I know, I was there. I remember exactly how it was. Thanks, Richard, for coming in. My pleasure. And let's keep in touch because I'd love to find out more about what you and other PhD students in your lab are doing uh, as well. I'd be very happy to do that. Terrific. We've been speaking with Derek Dapp and Associate Professor Richard Rayner. Ra- I will get that right, from Monash University. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Indeed you are. I reckon we've got time for a couple of bits of news. Sure. This is a story, Bron, that I think is close to your heart because you loved the movie The Cove. Yes. Uh, And in that movie featured uh, Rico Barry, who's an animal rights activist and was formerly a trainer of Flipper. So his heart is also very close to dolphins. And apparently he's, well, allegedly he's been arrested in Japan. Right. This week uh, for failing to carry a passport. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's a bit of a, you know, funny thing to happen, I suppose. Well, it's good to... Sounds a bit border force, doesn't it? It does a little bit. Um, Yeah. Well... Yeah, so the, the report was that he'd been drinking alcohol and driving, but uh, when officers went out to um, catch up with him, they checked his breath and it, and his reading was not very high at all. So a bit of a, a false lead, I suppose, to try and uh, divert what his, what his intentions are there for because, because the, the annual uh, dolphin hunting is about to start. So I guess Japan's trying to... Um, throw a spanner in the works for all the activism. Yeah, interesting though, because what's ended up happening is that they've actually drawn attention to the they fact have. that this is about to start and here's this wonderful man over there trying to stop it. So That's right, it's yeah. It's funny how publicity works, yeah. isn't it? It is, yeah. You know that saying, all publicity is good publicity. That's so, right. um, and, and Sea Shepherd have also said that um, immigration have not let in any of their anti-whaling demonstrators at airports. So, um, but, but Mr O'Barry will have to pay a fine it's likely to pay a fine of $1,160 and be kept in detention for 48 hours. So I suppose uh, that was Tuesday's he'll be out by now. But um, I thought that was interesting. And if you're if, if you're a supporter of that cause, um, now's the time to act, I guess. Absolutely, as we all should be. A uh, quick plug for the Environmental Film Festival Australia because they're actually they've gone beyond Melbourne now they're in Canberra and Hobart but their uh, Melbourne festival is on at the moment it started on Thursday and goes right through till the Thursday coming there have been some amazing films on uh, a couple last night at the um, Melbourne Planetarium uh, on Coral which looked like it was absolutely incredible what's coming up tomorrow uh, the rest of the films are all at the Kino so there's one tomorrow Sailing a Sinking Sea which we spoke a little bit about last week um, which is a, a documentary on uh, some of the events around the tsunami a few years ago. Uh, so absolutely incredible uh, movie that would be worth going to have a look at. So that's on at 7 o'clock tomorrow at the Kino. Um, then at 8.45 there's a screening of a short film called The Orphan and the Polar Bear, which I confess I don't know that much about, but it, it does look pretty pretty uh, incredible. I have had a quick look at the um, uh, Environmental Film Festival website and there are some great movies coming up. Best thing to do is you can check that out for yourself and I think we've already put a link to that on we our Facebook page. Thank Thank you, Angeline. I've been busy. Yes, <laughs> thanks the for doing that. 
Wanted to mention a really quick one, and then we've got to get Tim Lynch on the line. Um, Premier's volunteer champions. So Victorian government's announced a call for nominations to recognise and celebrate outstanding volunteers, and this is a really great initiative. Uh, the program's called Premier's Volunteer Champions Award. They're now open for nominations until uh, the nominations close on the 15th of September. So you've got a couple of weeks to do that. Uh, there are a few different categories. So Volunteer of the Year, which is the Dame Elizabeth Murdoch Award. There's an Outstanding Youth Volunteer for 24 Years and Under. Outstanding Adult Volunteers for tw- adult, sorry, adult Volunteers for 25 Years and Over. Outstanding Volunteer Managers and Outstanding Volunteer Team, uh, Rural and Regional. And then there's an Outstanding Volunteer Team category for Metropolitan Melbourne uh, with a celebratory ceremony taking place in December. So if you want some more information to that, uh, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well, dhs.vic.gov.au slash Premier's Volunteer Awards. So there's a lot to remember there. Have a look at our Facebook page. We'll put it up there. Terrific. I think we should go to a, a quick track. I think we should. And then get on the line. Tim Lynch from CSIRO, he will have been waiting in Hobart for some time. We will get him on the line right now. Um, and here's a bit of Hank Green. We played this one a long time ago, haven't for a while. And we're talking about the handfish, which apparently is a type of anglerfish. So I thought we might play this one. It's a song about an anglerfish. Yes, it's true that I once went through life as a guy who always had to ram life with a strife. Yes, I've been burning, I've been spurning through it all. Yes, I have learned that love is not about whether you get stabbed or slow the knife gets stirred. But my friends, I found an animal who doesn't feel the pain, and my life is so much better now that I can feel the same. Because you can't hate the night if you lived your whole life without light. You can't hate the dish you've only ever eaten fish, and you can't feel alone if it's all you've ever known. Yeah, the deep sea angler fish have no reason to be happy, but it have no freaking idea what else to be. The deep sea dwelling anglerfish never has to find a mate. They are always there together when it's time to procreate. See one dark night, a young that likes the female on her side, and then slowly he becomes a sperm-producing parasite. And if we could say he lives it all, he lives until she dies, and until that day he literally never leaves her side. Yeah, you can't hate the night if you live your whole life without light, and you can't hate the fish you've only ever eaten fish, and you can't feel alone. simply do not feel what is always there. I ask my brain to entertain that pain is the same. That if I feel it all the time, can you really call it pain? I don't have any friends and I don't have any hair, but neither does the English and she doesn't care. Because you can't eat the night if you live your whole life without light. You can't eat the fish if you've only ever eaten fish. And you can't feel alone if it's all you've ever known. presents a special one-hour in-conversation event with acclaimed scientist, environmentalist and award-winning author Tim Flannery, live from the Triple R Performance Space. The team from Einstein at GoGo will chat to Tim all about his latest book, Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Tim Flannery in conversation during Einstein at GoGo, live from the Triple R Performance Space, Sunday, September 13th at 11am sharp. Subscribers, stay tuned or check out the Triple R website for your chance to be part of the audience. Ah, 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 ah. 
Indeed. Hey, it's... Uh, I can't add up, Angeline. 18 minutes to 10. <laughs> You're really troubled this morning, aren't you? I've got to ask, was there caffeine in that coffee you had? Do you know what? I had two coffees this morning and I usually had one. Can you tell? And it still didn't work. Only two coffees. This is really sad. <laughs> <laughs> Time to fess up. Hey, we're having trouble getting on to um, to Tim Lynch. So um, Kent is trying to get on to him. So while he's doing that, we're going to go to some news and also a couple of subscribers who've just subscribed in. So thank you very much to Jason Flaherty from Coburg North and he has subscribed via the phone. He's called and uh, Kent has taken his subscription. If you, if you don't call in right now because we're trying to get Tim Lynch on the line, but um, yes, if you, if you are able to, um, office hours are always better. Of course, you can subscribe via the web. So thank you very much, Jason. And uh, Woody the Goldfish. This is oh, a bit of a fantastic. special is he our first goldfish? I think he is our first. He or she is our first goldfish from uh, Callista. So thank you, Woody the goldfish. And, um, and oh, Woody is subscribing to a memory of past presenters. So I reckon that's a great oh, subscription. And you'd remember, Woody, because you've got a three-second memory. No, that's been debunked. Mary <laughs> fish don't actually have a three-second memory at all. Thank you very much. We really appreciate those subscriptions. All right, let's um, let's do some news, Angeline. Well, I'm just going to give an update on the Ocean Cleanup Project uh, out of the Netherlands. And this is a project that was started about two years ago, and it's the, the proposal is to clean up the rubbish out of the the guys out of the uh, oceans, there's five of them, but they're going to start with the Pacific. And and it's basically the technology is that they've got these big, long booms that they connect to a a sort of a station and and they wait for the the rubbish to come to the booms by the currents. So the currents swing the rubbish around and then they collect that rubbish and and I don't think they're sure what they're going to do with it yet, but potentially recycled or at least disposed of out of the oceans. And and in light of, in fact, the CSIRO saying this week that they think that by 2050, 99% of the world's seabirds will have ingested plastic. This that's is a, shocking. That's shocking, isn't it? This is a really important project. And, I mean, the big risk is that this, all the plastic that's out there floating around in these garbage patches is being broken down by UV light into much uh, smaller pieces, which are much more dangerous. They call them microplastics. And these are being ingested by seabirds and other sea animals. And, and if 99% of birds are going to ingest this stuff, I think we're going to have some serious losses in seabirds in the near future. So where the project's up to, very recently they've done a uh, reconnaissance mission. They've gone out and actually measured this big garbage patch uh, and they took out 30 sea vessels. I will point out too that this project is crowdfunded. It's the biggest crowdfunding project in the world. They've raised 2.2 million US by th- uh, and 38,000 people have contributed to it. Um, from 160 countries and it also has significant uh, contributions from Salesforce because their chairman and uh, chief executive Mark Benioff is really environmentally conscious and, and supporting this project. So I can't believe this entire thing is crowdfunded. It's that, amazing, that's isn't amazing. it? That's amazing. Yeah, this is such an exciting project. And so they took these 30 vessels out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and went across it in parallel covering uh, 3.5 million kilometres squared and they collect a lot of plastic measurements over three weeks, uh, or you know, measurements in general about how deep it is and, and how large the pieces are. Uh, and it's been the, the biggest project ever to measure 
ocean rubbish and plastic. Um, and that, so they've completed that and they've come back and said they're still analysing all the data, but predominantly their preliminary findings are indicating that a higher than expected volume of large plastic objects floating out in the ocean. So it's a big mix of big things, including things that are left over from the Japanese tsunami uh, and ghost nets um, and other bits of plastic. And most of this plastic enters the sea through our rivers and waterways. I mean, we are responsible for doing this, uh, which is, you know, just really sad that mm. our, this is what our oceans are turning into. And I think they were saying that about 8.5 million tonnes of plastic enters the oceans every year. 8.5 million tonnes every year. So yep. in addition to what's already in there, we're just pumping That's in how another 8.5 million tonnes. Not 8.5 tonnes, 8.5 million, million tonnes. That's right. So a project like this is really significant because, you know, we're just on this trajectory to eventually just fill the oceans with plastic. Uh, and once they've completed their research and they've worked out had an idea of estimating the rubbish and, and what it is so that they can set up the system to collect it. They're going to go out and start their first trial. That's next year in Japan uh, where they're going to set up a small-scale a small scale system there to start collecting the rubbish. Um, and this is a really interesting spot that they've chosen because uh, it's, it's this Japanese island of Tushimira, I think it said. I probably mm-hmm. totally butchered that. Uh, and it's a great location that they've chosen because the wave and current conditions are very favourable for their tests and there's a huge amount of plastic there. Uh, the island where they're performing the tests will seize about 30,000 cubic metres of trash washed ashore every year, uh, which is a large amount of plastic. And the Japanese government and the residents are behind this project and supporting it because they want to see less plastic and rubbish on their beaches. Uh, so that's due to start in 2016. And if that goes all well, the whole... Um, Pacific Cleanup Project will start in 2020, and it sounds, you know, it sounds like a long way away, but that's only five years away. You know, it's hard to sort of adjust. It's five years <laughs> to of these days, an eye as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. In a, in a project like this, so I mean, there are people who say that this isn't going to work, but I mean, there's always going to be people that are going to be negative about a project. But it sounds like uh, you know they've really thought about this and they believe it'll work. And there's a hundred scientists working on it. A hundred scientists working on a single project. And all, I'm guessing there'd be a fair amount of in-kind support by the academic institutions. Well, majority of volunteers, they only have about 25 staff, and that's a still fair number of staff, but... um all totally through crowdfunding. Yeah. So I've put a link on our Facebook page. So if you want to stay in touch with it and see how it goes, and, and I think they're still really interested in people volunteering if you want to go over to the Netherlands and get involved, yeah. uh, you can still do that. Hey, Boyanne Slat, future Nobel Prize winner. Absolutely. Tip From that? a 21-year-old guy. I mean, this is amazing. Yeah. Imagine he thought of this project when he was still at school. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. I know. And I remember at the time we reported on this a few years ago saying, well, you know, good luck to him for having a crack at this because it seems like an unsolvable problem. But he's got out there and he's doing it. It's just amazing. It is. And I, I think the thing I love about this project the most is that it's realising that there is no other planet uh, for us in our foreseeable lifetimes to live on and that this money's being spent looking after the planet that we have mm. rather than thinking of one that you know we probably won't survive the, the mission to. And isn't that a refreshing thing too? Yep.
to have money going to a project like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And being the opportunistic, um, I don't know, I'm trying to find a marine metaphor for this. We are being opportunistic because we're welcoming back into the studio for the last four minutes of the show, Richard Rayner. Thanks for coming back. My pleasure. So glad you stuck around. No, so am I. We were going to have a chat in the green room um, because we haven't managed to get onto Tim Lynch. But instead... You've uh, mentioned, so um, Sean Williamson, good morning. Good morning. Now, you've been out in the green room actually looking at playing kind of babysitter role. Yeah, looking after Derek's child while he was in here <laughs> talking about his shark research. Yeah. So, um, and we were out there and I said, oh, look, we can't get on to Tim. And then, Richard, you said, well, why don't you have a chat to Sean? Yes, because, you know, sharks is part of the research program that I have, but I also do a lot of work with, with penguins down at Phillip Island and then sea turtles. And I said, well, why don't you have a chat with Sean? Because um, he's worked with, with sea turtles and, and saltwater crocodiles and he's about to head off to Costa Rica on, a, on a, a research project as part of his PhD later this year. So I thought, well, let's get him in and have a chat. Definitely. So, Sean, tell us about your PhD project. Well, it's uh, been pretty eclectic. I've started off working with saltwater crocodiles up in Darwin and we're basically, for my entire project, looking at embryonic development in different species of reptile. Uh, and so this all started from a previous uh, student of Richard's, Tony Rafferty, who've discovered that sea turtles um, essentially arrest development and it's not until they lay the egg into the nest that the, the embryo starts developing again. Right. And he discovered that it's actually the oxygen increase in the nest that starts the development again. So I've kind of been continuing on with that tract of research and we've discovered that crocodiles um, can't arrest development and now heading over to Costa Rica and we're going to be doing a bunch of experiments with turtles trying to essentially manipulate the nest environment with different levels of oxygen and show that we can pause development at different stages and I've also done an experiment up on Heron Island with green sea turtles and we've shown that if you get to the eggs within the first 12 hours after they've been dropped into the nest you can place them into hypoxia so low oxygen environment and they'll actually remain arrested for up to three days. Right, so they don't actually die, they just kind no, of pause yeah, they, in their development. No, yeah, this amazing pause state, and it's this cool phenomenon that we don't really understand a whole lot about. It appears that there's no metabolism occurring, and they're sort of just pause there, sitting, waiting to start developing. Wow, so it's kind of like a hibernation, I suppose, like a reproductive hibernation. It's, it's a little bit like that, and, and the significance of that as a strategy is that if a turtle is developing eggs within the overduct, if the embryo continues to grow beyond a certain point, when she lays the eggs, she comes up onto the beach and lays the eggs, as they fall into the nest, there's the risk that the embryo might get killed because of the mechanical shock tearing membranes and this kind of thing. Right. So they pause the development and it also means that if they come up on the beach to lay eggs and they're disturbed or the conditions aren't suitable and they have to come back the following night or even the night after that, the eggs remain paused wow. until after they're laid and then they start the development and, and we had shown that this is because of low oxygen concentration inside the overduct of the female wow. turtle. So it's purely linked to the constant concentration of oxygen. Yes, yeah. that's right. And so we had we work with a, a, a wildlife vet from Healesville Sanctuary to actually make measurements of the oxygen concentration inside the overduct of these adult green female turtles. Sean, when are you off? I'm heading off on the 29th of this month. So, okay. Yeah, when counting you, down. So when are you back? Um, I actually 
booked my return, but for the 21st of March. So it's a solid five month oh, trip. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So yeah. next year we want to get you in studio and find out what you what you did and That'd what you found great. out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow, you got one of the coolest projects I've ever heard about. <laughs> Thanks for stepping in. Yeah. It's been great to have a 30 second snapshot, and Thanks looking for forward me. to uh, yeah catching up with you soon. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure. We'll, we'll talk again and get you in shortly. And, uh, yep, thanks to Kath's been panelling for us today. Thank you, Angeline. Thank you. And I just want to say a quick good morning to Cliff Dave- Davis down at uh, Antarctica. Brilliant. And thanks to Kent as well. I'm super. Thanks for asking. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.